November 1st, 2017. It's This Week at VA, episode 55. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. I hope everyone had a fun and safe Halloween. November is a busy month for us as we decided to make the entire month Veterans Month. Uh, and we have events and campaigns running all through the next 30 days. And before I introduce my featured guest for the day, I want to let you know uh, I want to let, let you in on a few things, uh, especially regarding what we're doing next week, specifically, as we all know, 10 days from now or 11 days from now, however you want to count it, November 11th, Veterans Day. It's a Saturday, which means the Friday before is when a lot of people are recognizing it. Then, of course, there's events going on all through the week as people get uh, pumped up for uh, just celebrating veterans and, and, how, and where they are in our community and how they contribute. First, the podcast, uh, the podcast you listen to right now, it will be taking on a slightly different look and feel as I update the programming to provide the best listener experience. Second, the podcast will have an episode every day next week from Monday to Saturday. So be sure to check out our pot be sure to check out your podcast app of choice each day for a brand new episode each day. Third, our digital media team will be out and about all day on the 10th and the 11th as we cover all the Veteran Days Veterans Day events here in DC. And we'll also be collecting stories images, other content from around the country. So be sure to follow us on all of our channels to keep up with all of those activities. There's going to be a lot of great stuff coming through. We're on Twitter and Instagram, both at DEPT Vet Affairs. We are also on Snapchat. That's right. We're on Snapchat now. We're at DEPT Vet Affairs there. That is a new development, so don't expect anything us from uh, from us really until Veterans Day. But if you're a Snap user and want to check us out, we're there. We plan to be ve- we plan to be uh, very active on that uh, on Veterans Day. So it's a great day to to follow us there. Facebook.com slash Veterans Affairs is where we, where we can be found on Facebook. And then, of course, we have our trusty blog that covers just about everything else that we do, actually covers everything we do, all-inclusive. It has the stories, the images, the videos, all that. Uh, and that is at blogs.va.gov. Lastly, we are partnering with Got Your Six for Storytelling. Lastly, we are partnering with Storytelling. Got your six for Storytellers X events all around the country. This sort of being the TEDx version of their original Storytellers events, which uh, this year will be in DC and LA. Storytellers, uh, an opportunity for veterans to talk about where they are now in their life and how their military service sort of contributed and got them there. It's very, uh, very cool storytelling. Uh, a lot of great veterans stepping up to, um, to share their story. Those original events that I mentioned will be streaming uh, online next week. I believe uh, the, um, another one here in D.C. is on the 8th. Um, and you can go to Got Your Six Facebook page. And I su- suggest finding them there and following them for updates because uh, I believe they'll be streaming it live there on Facebook. So we hope that you will uh, follow along during our Veterans Day week and weekend. And we look forward to bringing you great content from the veteran community. Today's featured interview is Marine veteran Kevin Leverance. Now, I bring Kevin on to talk about his experience with VA from his most frustrating point when he uh, at, when he had his largest disdain for the organization, um, all the way till now where he's receiving the care that he's looking for. Um, not perfect, but but there and what he needs and uh, satisfactory and good. I think, you know, I think um, I don't want to uh, put too many words in, in his mouth, but you'll hear him uh, describe exactly how he feels about it. It's important that we tell these stories. When we first launched the podcast, there was some, uh, some initial, uh, I want to call it criticism because there wasn't much to criticize yet, but there was some wonder that uh, if we were going to feature veterans that haven't had a pleasant experience uh, with the VA. And some of my guests in the past have already alluded to their frustrations with the VA or at least challenges that they faced. Um, but I wanted to bring on someone who is who is invited, not just someone who uh, maybe volunteering, but I am asking them, 
please tell us about each experience that you had, both negative and positive. Uh, and Kevin agreed to come forward and do that. We talk about a wide range of things um, that VA offers, especially vet centers, patient advocates, and other things that helped Kevin get from the sticking points of not trusting VA and not being able to get the care that he needed to where he is now where he has access to care uh, and he's getting what he needs from VA. And that's really what's most important uh, for us. Um, and that's what we want everybody to get away, get out of this. So uh, without further ado, Marine Corps veteran Kevin Leverance. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA careers to find out more. Okay, Marine Corps veteran Kevin Leverance, you uh, you and I have spoken before. You were featured on uh, my podcast, One Too Many Veteran Suicide, talking about um, how you've dealt with emotional crisis in the past and, and, and how you've been able to recover from it. And I'm bringing you back on today to talk about your experience with the VA. One of the big question marks that people had when this podcast started was, will we actually ever hear from the veteran and their experience with VA? Well, I, admittedly, that hasn't been uh, a focal point quite yet. We've talked to veterans about uh, their, their experience in the service. We've talked about their uh, transition now to what they're doing now, stuff like that. But I do want to deliver um, on the veteran experience with the VA, both good and bad. So, sir, that's what you're here to do. Well, I'm glad to be here to share my story. Yeah. Um, but let's start where we start every interview. Uh, bring us back to the day that you decided to join the United States Marine Corps. Sure. Let's see. So I joined the Marine Corps after high school, the summer after high school, after I graduated. That was uh, 2000, year 2000. And I actually come from a line of Marines. My father was a Marine. Uh, my grandfather was a flamethrower on Iwo Jima. He was wounded on, on Iwo Jima after six days and evacuated. So we kind of have that heritage in the family, much to my mother's dismay. Um, that's what I knew about. She never told me about her side of the family that uh, was all Army. So who knows how differently that would have worked had I known about her brothers, her father in, in the Philippines in World War II. Um, but uh, the, the family heritage kind of drove which branch of service, and it was it was something. I wanted to do something. I wanted to um, – put effort into something that mattered. So I gave a lot of consideration to the National Guard, actually, because then I could, you know, stay around the country. I could help with disasters. And then I gave it some more thought and I didn't know that I could come home and continue to be part of a Marine family, having joined the National Guard. So um, made my choice there, went off to the Marine Corps. Uh, I am a Hollywood Marine. We're the toughest ones because we hike mountains, apparently. That's what they say. <laughs> so I, I think I'm more amused by the, the argument than actually taking sides in yeah, it. Yeah, of course. So, and I was a uh, motor T operator. I was a truck driver in an infantry battalion, and I deployed with, and geez, 2004 is when I actually deployed uh, with 2nd Battalion, 24th Marines. We went to central Iraq, a town called Mamadia. We were about 20 miles south of Baghdad, and being motor T, I think, was about the best job I could have had in that battalion, that I didn't have to be one of the grunts doing all the dirty work. But I got to get off the fob and get around and see what was going on. So we we made all kinds of trips to Abu Ghraib to drop detainees. Our supplies came out of uh, the Baghdad airport and Fallujah. We'd go up to Camp Snoopy is what we called it at the time. Uh, pretty cushy up there. Really good chow up there at Fallujah. And uh, it, was, it was nice. I got to see all of that. We'd rotate through the field with the line companies. Um, got to do uh, some of that work with them. So it was uh, – a pretty interesting deployment there, a pretty hot and heavy area, too, that I think about a week in before we started taking enemy contact, uh, pretty frequent enemy contact, um, we spread our battalion out and, and pushed into some questionable areas to secure them, so we had those kind of contacts. Um, a couple months before we came home, I was wounded by an IED. Um, I got hit by a couple of them when I was in seven-ton trucks, and 
nothing really damages those things, which was fantastic. And this time I was lucky enough to be driving a Humvee and the bomb was in a, a pothole pretty close below us. So, um, I was able to eh, not walk, stumble away from this attack. Fortunately, very fortunately, um, with the proximity and everything, and I sustained some small wounds, uh, concussion. I was knocked out, um, some things of that nature. But uh, a day off of work, and they, you know, medical sent me right back to it. Hydrate, take your Motrin, change your socks, and get back to the back to the line. So I came home and. Um, had a had a rough transition, and we'll talk some more. Uh, you know, brief little VA story. Getting into it, that I went to the VA for help, didn't get some help, and then kind of headed down this dark road. Um, and like you mentioned, we talked about some of the emotional crises when we talked a couple years ago. And uh, the VA, uh, again, you know, bad experiences, good experiences. The VA's the VA's kind of redeemed itself a little bit with me, uh, but not without a lot of effort. So. You know, here I am now. I'm married. I have three children. Um, I live in, in Illinois outside of Chicago. Um, I'll stay outside of Chicago. That's way too crowded, way too peopley there for me. So I'll stay out here in the suburbs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, and that's where we are here. So. Very well. So do you, do you have a, um, do you have a, I mean, you just shared one with us there. I don't know if maybe you have an, a, another one, a, uh, a story that maybe summarizes your time in, maybe the epitome of it, maybe a story you'd like to recall on often. Um, I mean, I, the, the story you shared was, uh, that was, that was great, but, uh, pri- priming you for one more, sir. <laughs> one more. Uh, well, I'm going to take the opportunity to brag about a good friend of mine yeah. uh, named Andy Nowacki. Um, he was kind of what made, uh, living in that country in those circumstances bearable. Uh, I never saw this guy that didn't have a smile on his face. Um, we got tasked with changing out the, the chem lights, the glow sticks in the porta potties, uh, that we had and he'd make a game out of it, <laughs> you know, and just very upbeat, always singing eighties hair metal, glam rock, always had like the, a pristine, beautiful mustache. Holy cow. 1970s would have been real proud of this mustache he had. Um, really, we, you know, we called him our, our morale Marine really kept everybody going upbeat. Um, just great from the top down, the, the battalion commander knew this guy's name cause we'd roll out of the gate and he'd be waving at the battalion commander from, from the turret of the lead vehicle with a big smile on his face and uh, everybody just had a great time with this guy. And Andy was, like I said, he was in the turret, he was in our lead vehicle and he sat behind a 50 caliber machine gun. And when we were there in 04 and 05, we started to get some of these Humvees that had some armor to them. Um, you know, some of them were reappropriated from other uh, branches and other units, but for the most part, we didn't have built up turrets. We didn't have a lot of protection for our gunners that were up top. And uh, Andy was up there day in and day out with that smile on his face. He got in that turret, and uh, he took point on our on our convoys, on our patrols, whatever it was. Um, he was the first one to encounter any kind of danger with the rest of us behind us and really took that front point. And it was, geez, it was about a week after I was wounded that um, his vehicle sustained a blast. And Andy was, he was fatally wounded. He took a, a pretty bad head wound, um, you know. The, the crew in that Humvee, we, we did our thing. We stopped. We tried to stabilize the area. Unfortunately, there was no other enemy contact after that IED. It was an isolated blast. And uh, Andy got packaged up. We put him on a helicopter and flew him into Baghdad, and uh, we carried on our way. I mean, that's just what we did. We weren't the only ones that ever had to do that. And when we got where we were going, we all got pulled aside and let us know that Andy made it to surgery but uh, never made it out of surgery that they couldn't do anything for him because of his injuries were, were so severe. And uh, that was kind of a, a harsh blow for all of us because we all took it very personally. And we were all in very close proximity. And uh, for me personally, my experience was that I had been through this combat aidsman course to help the corpsmen when there's massive traumas. But I was I was close enough to see what was going on and experience what was going on with Andy, but I was far enough away that I had other responsibilities of securing that position and making sure that those working weren't in any more danger. So, uh, you know, come to find out later, that was another one of my large problems that I had to work through, that I had some knowledge and some skills that maybe I could have done something differently. I know better now that my minor level of skills wasn't going to change the outcome of that, but it took a lot of work to to be okay with that and uh, get past that guilt and that burden. And now I can share Andy's stories and uh, speak 
so fondly of him and not have any kind of problems and, and give him the the honor that he deserves when when we tell these kinds of stories. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, maybe we can make him veteran of the day, uh, here soon. We'd, we'd like to do that for him. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, so tell us about, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that your transition was difficult. The VA didn't help with that, uh, at the time, but let, let's talk about your transition. Um, on, let's first where it started. Uh, how did you, um, like, what was that decision? Were you, um, yeah, what prompted your, your, your transition out? Well, I came home and I spent another year in the reserves. So um, I finished up another year. I left the, the Marine Corps in 2006 is when I was finally done with um, reserve time. Um, and there was a unit here in Chicago that I hung out with for that time. So I still had uh, kind of a step-down transition, but I didn't have that, that experience. A lot of guys did came home and to contract, and they were done completely whether that's more beneficial or not, you know, six and one, half dozen and the other kind of thing. Um, but I came home and had, uh, before I went into the reserves, had some good terminal leave time and went with some friends out. Um, and I just planned on going about life as normal. I didn't anticipate any kind of changes. Um, when we came home to Pendleton in California there, I did sit in front of a psychiatrist, uh, and not to be too chauvinistic about things, but it was a female Navy psychiatrist, and that definitely played into it, I think, at the time that uh, she sat in front of me and said, hey, you know, there's – they give you all the questionnaires to process out. And it was, hey, you know, it said here that you have trouble sleeping and whatever else I, I marked down there that caused concern. And here's a mental health professional. Here's a physician in front of me telling me that she has concerns, and my response was, what do you know? You know, you you didn't go over there. You don't know any of these things. Of course, I had trouble sleeping um, while we were while we were gone. My my grandmother that lived with with um, with us when we were uh, before I went in lived in my mother's house. She died on Christmas morning while we were gone. So I called home and found out grandma had died. And so all you know, all these emotions are just bottled up and piled up there. And and I took a lot of them out on her as I transitioned out. Um, and then that was kind of the end of it. That it was, well, you can go ahead and yell at me all you want. You're done with me now, you know, and I left the office and that was kind of the end of any kind of processing out discussion that I had. Um, you know, the, it, like I said, it was in front of the psychiatrist. I never saw anybody about uh, sustaining blast injuries. I think we were just starting to talk about traumatic brain injuries at that point or maybe even shortly after that. So, yeah, what, um, what year is this again? This was 05. Okay. This was oh, yeah. May of 05. Yeah, so we're, maybe the front end of that discussion, if it even started yet. So, um, and then the same thing with, with all the PTSD stuff. I don't think that that discussion, looking back, had really started up yet either. Or maybe the discussion did, but we didn't know what to do about it as a, as a service and as, as a government. So, um, so I did, I came home and I spent another, like I said, you know, several months hanging out in the reserves and then, the end, it, you know, it was the summertime and, uh, my nephew, um, his godfather, he was being baptized and we were on a training exercise. Uh, we were supposed to be on a training exercise for the two weeks during his baptism. And we were actually pretty close geographically to this, uh, the training exercise and the baptism. And I asked to go to that, that can I take, uh, you know, a Sunday morning, go over here and, and make this work somehow. And I got, a uh, no help. From the chain of command, it was, no, you're in the training exercise, you're doing this, that's what's happening. And it was a pretty low-key training exercise. I mean, we, we didn't have much money left in the budget, so it was really it was going to the range for two weeks. So uh, I got kind of mad about that again, all these bottled-up things going on, and just said, well, I'm, I'm going to leave the unit, I'm done, and I checked out. So... Um, that was that was kind of the end of it. Not not exactly my proudest professional moment <laughs> in the Marine Corps, but yeah. you know, um, it is what it is. You can't go back and change that now, and and made that transition out. So yeah. So then what? Um, so so that would have been. So this is two thousand five still, or is this two thousand seven? This is two thousand six. Six. This okay. Is summer of two thousand six. So so that if this two summer two thousand six. Um, how long then until your first engagement with the VA post-military? Post-military um, was a while. I think it was 2014. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, my, my first encounter was in 2005. I did right. come home, and I was on that terminal time. And I 
had a whole lot of anxiety problems, and it was the St. Louis VA hospital. And I went in there and asked for help, and essentially the response was, you haven't been home long enough to have problems, so you need to go. And they, they gave me some prescription. I never even saw the doctor. I never saw any doctor. I saw like a, a, a nurse at a desk, and it's, here's a prescription for you. Just go away. You haven't been home long enough. Things will be fine. I don't even know what the prescription was. I didn't fill it. I think I crumpled it up, threw it on the floor, and walked out and said, forget this. I'll deal with it myself. So so that kind of set the tone so that seven years later was um, – you know that's that's my impression of the VA. That's what VA healthcare is, and why would I why would I go get that kind of help? Um, but I I got in I started getting into some trouble at work. Things started uh, boiling over. That I spent all these years staying busy, uh, spending every waking moment doing something, no matter what it was. I'd go to school. I'd work three, four jobs. Um, you name it. I'd drink a whole lot, a whole lot of drinking, and. It got to this point that things now started boiling over, and they carried over into work, and I have a lot of interaction with the public in my work, and that started causing friction. And so as I'm being questioned and interviewed in the disciplinary process about this, it really hits on a lot of these um, sticking points that I had been trying to run away from all these years, and I couldn't get through work. started having more anxiety. The depression got worse. The drinking got worse. And I was married at the time, and I had a couple kids. I had all three of my kids, actually. And my wife kind of – she tried to be gentle all the years. She tried to give me a push. She tried to make suggestions, and I blew her off. And she kind of sat me down and got real about it and was, hey, knucklehead, because she stays home with our children, takes care of the kids while I work. She said, hey, knucklehead, you you screw this job up, and nobody's feeding our children, and we don't have a way to pay for our house, and this isn't just about you. So – um, it kind of got to a point of desperation that I went back to the VA to begin with uh, here in Chicago. And that, again, was another bad experience that I went into the mental health intake. And um, Loyola University Medical Center is right next to, literally next to, they share a parking lot. So a lot of interns come over and get some experience at the VA hospital, which educationally is great. But I sat in front of a first-year medical student and not a mental health professional answering questions about the trouble I was having. And they, um, he wasn't sure what to do with me after three hours because I didn't have a single event that was causing me trouble. That he was hung up on, well, the book says it's got to be one single thing that gives you PTSD, so you must not have PTSD because there's not one single event. I'm not taking into account that all of us spent how many months at a time yeah. <laughs> with these kind of events. Um, I finally got in front of the doctor, and her response was, well, I don't think you've had anything in your life that would constitute you know, emotional trauma. So, um, we don't think we have services for you here. Um, again, this is, taking my, this is 2014, huh? This is 2014. Wow. So, um, I had to pretty graphically describe for her, uh, some gnarly things, some gnarly experiences, um, enemy contacts and whatnot. Get, like I said, pretty graphic about it before she would give me that kind of credence and say, well, hey, maybe, maybe we'll refer you to, our trauma services program here at the hospital and have you talk with them. And they assigned me to a psychiatrist that I would see regularly. Um, and she gave me another prescription. She said, here's your prescription, go away. The therapeutic dose was, we'll say 20 milligrams, but I'm only going to prescribe you 10. So, uh, you know, my question was, why am I even taking any at all if I'm not hitting this therapeutic threshold even? Yeah. So, uh, so I finally get in front of the psychiatrist and I thought maybe this will be a little bit better because I got my referrals. I, I made my fight for it. Um, this psychiatrist, and I'm off of work at this point to get treatment, um, took four months off of work. The next psychiatrist to whom they assigned me, her response was, you need to get over it and just go back to work. So <laughs> things, things are not going the, the smoothest here with the psychiatry side. Yeah. Um, were you getting trauma- any other healthcare from VA at the time? No. Okay. Uh, you know what? I was, I guess there was the psychiatry side and then they did send me the trauma services program, um, with all psychologists up there, and they were a little bit better. Um, but you weren't you a, weren't seeing a physician about a back problem or anything mm, like. No, no okay. other medical. I, I had my. I mean, I had my my primary doctor. Right. Um, just because I mean, you have to you have to have your primary right. for any other services to be available. I can't remember the last time I even saw him. Even you know, I tried to get in to see him about stuff, and they said we can see in eight to ten, eight to ten weeks to see him. So. Um, yeah, so all this stuff's going on with psychiatry. Trauma, the trauma services program was pretty good. They put me in a therapy program called cognitive processing therapy. And 
um, it was marginally effective. I think the, the shortcoming there was that that is a, a, an effective program, evidence-based program based on a single event. So um, we were able to, to work through one event, but not in a deployment of events. So that was kind of that hang up, but it was, it was a step in the right direction. We were going the right direction, but um, even still, it was a very scripted program. And I was with a psychology intern. So I wasn't with a licensed provider who had the flexibility and the experience to adapt this, that it was, you need to fit in this, uh, this mold for, for us to go on. And I did that for 14 weeks. That was what the script prescribed. And, um, and it was, it was 55 minutes when I went. And at 55 minutes, somebody else was knocking on the door saying, it's my turn to you, the room. You guys have to get out. So it didn't matter what kind of emotional turmoil I was in or where we were in this therapy process that 55 minutes was up and you're out of here. Um, and then I had to get in the car and drive home. And like I told you, I mean, half my trouble was driving because of <laughs> that was my deployment experience. So I get I get spun up and then I get in the car and get sent home. And usually I came home and just got drunk and tried to forget the rest of the day. Um so, you know, I mean, I, I later found out that there was an OEF, OIF, OEF program that they had these case managers to help you organize your care. I never knew that because nobody ever referred me there. Um, I asked how you get into that program. They said, it's not for you. You don't qualify for that, um, which I'm in there now. I made a, a you know, stink about it now. And <laughs> I come to find out there's very limited criteria on qualifying for that program and yeah, that's, uh, and, I, and I make it. <laughs> so that's um, you know, and and this is where me as a, a veteran and a VA employee will admit that there's a lot of programs and resources and outlets and all this sort of stuff available. I mean, I, every week I discover something new on VA's website. Right as I'm gr- going through it, I'm like, oh, we do this, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> oh, that's available. And I, you know, I've, I've only been here for what a year and a half, and it's a huge organization that's been doing a lot of things for a long time, but. Um, yeah, programs will pop up like, oh, we did, you know, we we do this, and then um, it seems like the it's difficult. Um, like vet centers are a really great example. Vet centers, I, th- I think, are something that not a lot of veterans know about, and they're uh, you know they're centers that uh, are available, especially for um, for veterans that that aren't near a uh, a medical center, and they can use the there's counseling available and stuff like that. But there's like certain criteria to be able to use it, and so I never like want. To, it's always weird to try to recommend them to someone because I don't want to recommend them. So, or a program or a resource not knowing if they qualify and then end up disappointing them when they realize that they don't qualify. Um, right. You know, so sometimes those processes can, can, can get a little complicated, but you made it in there now. Um, has it been rewarding? It has. And, you know, that's what I found is the, the biggest hurdle as a, I guess, patient or a user of the system is that the gatekeepers are your biggest barrier. Your, your primary, I had a primary care physician. I went to him for hearing problems for a referral. He said, there's no pill for that. Just go home. Um, you know, so I have since found veteran advocate at the hospital and they have been phenomenal with addressing these needs. I have a better psychiatrist now. I have a better primary care physician now. And just like the vet centers you mentioned, that's where I've been for the last several years and have received the most effective therapy to be functional and effective and get through. And, um, like I said, is it the gatekeepers? I, I get into the traumatic brain injury clinic and the neurologists there are phenomenal. They're amazing. Um, I did some therapy in the speech, speech pathology department, uh, again, with the traumatic brain injury stuff, and they were phenomenal there. Um, my psychiatrist now is, is fantastic. He incorporates me into the care that he wants to adjust medications. And while I'm not a physician, he asks me what I think. That it's, I want to do these things with your medications. What do you think of that? And I get some ownership of that, that I don't get to make off the wall decisions, but I get to be, I'm engaged. So much more focused on me instead of the system and we need to check some boxes and just get you through. So, um, there's been a lot of good things at the hospital and at the outpatient clinic themselves. And I'm very fortunate that we have, I have a very large outpatient clinic right near me. Um, actually two of them. I have two right by, I have one right by work and one right by home. So I have a lot of access to services, which are fantastic. And like I said, most of my stuff comes through the vet center, which has been just absolutely phenomenal there. Um, 
So yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear that because uh, I was <laughs> as I was bringing up the vet center, I was like, well, you're, I was like, well, maybe oh. he doesn't have a good experience at the vet center. I was about <laughs> to counter my point, um, but I'm glad to hear that. And I think that's the. Uh, I, I'm yet to hear someone who has gotten access to a vet center say that they didn't, they didn't come out of, out of, they didn't appreciate or didn't enjoy or didn't find it rewarding or even effective. Um, you know, any of those words has usually been a way for that people describe their experience at the vet center. Um, it's been, it was, it's interesting, um, just to back up just a little bit, you're, um, you know, comparing 2006 to 2014 and, uh, you know, What's funny is if you look at VA's timeline, if you look at the timeline in which we as a health community understand PTSD, the the problems in 2006, you know, the, you know, aren't good, but they make sense, right? Uh, it, yes. it, it, looking back now in hindsight, it's clear that the medical community as a whole uh, didn't really have a grasp on PTSD, and VA was still like the in the lead on that, and we were still trying to figure it out. Um, and then in 2014, it's it's interesting that you, that you know you're still seeing experiences with um, with try, you know the determination on trying to find the one singular event or trying to dismiss what you may or may not have. Um, you know, I could speculate that um, that in the um, in the wake of the 2012 um, you know problems out of Arizona and the other issues that are going around VA, that there were still physicians that were trying to protect uh i think 2013 is when the websites of like how to scam va became popular <laughs> um you know like here's like here's what you have to say to get fully um and i think you know and i guess i'm just speculating that um you know there was probably areas of, of va where where um, there was some pushback or some protection of that but um i'm glad it, it, it's amazing how access has been such it has been the key right like i talk you talk to so many veterans and it seems like it's the veterans that have a trouble accessing the care are the ones that oftentimes have the worst things to say about it and it almost and i can and, and we can almost hear in your story is like you couldn't access the things that you needed and that's where a lot of the frustration a lot of the disappointment comes once you got there the care was right it was good am, am i right in that Yes, yeah, absolutely, and that it is, and I think um, my wife was a huge asset, and the research was what it was, is that I researched the hospital, she helped me research the hospital, we know what services are there, so when I go in and experience one of these barriers, and it's, you know, the response is, no, we don't have anything for you, I'm equipped to handle that, that even though I'm in turmoil, it's, no, you do, you do. You specifically have a program for emotional trauma, and I'm telling you how I'm having emotional crises here, so... Can you explain to me why not? You know, you you have the ask for those kind of explanations, and then, and I, I think you're absolutely right that there's a lot of. I mean, we know veterans, we know military service members that there are those that will kind of try and skate. They'll try and scan the system if they can, and um, you know, I mean, that's just the people. That's human nature. Is that you know, there's some that'll try and get something, and that's the real shame of it. Is that I think a lot of veterans don't do that research or they don't know how to do that research. So when they come in and say, I need something, give me something. I don't know what it is I need. I'm coming to you to tell me um, that you do. You come up against that kind of uh, compassion fatigue because you see people coming in that it's, I know the right words to tell you. I know how to script my little uh, speech during an assessment. Um, or, I mean, that's, that's going to be overwhelming and exhausting to begin with that you see so many of these veterans with problems that you're not equipped to handle, whether it be because of the system or um, science hasn't caught up. You know, I mean, we, we see emergency medicine is has been stuck in the Vietnam era developments of wound care and just now, well, now we're much better because we've had the last 15 years of of recent conflicts to, to learn from. But, I mean, medicine is reactionary to begin with, and then you have uh, something the size of a federal bureaucracy you can't go spend money on speculation i mean you have you have to have you have to show a need to spend money on it so to have a need i mean that's the the i think the troublesome part is you have people coming in and we don't know what the need is that you and i both walk in the room and say we're having the same problems you and i need different things but we don't know what that is so um it, it was once you get through once you get into the services that started developing and opening, the, the care was fantastic. The providers were fantastic. Um, the vet center was absolutely amazing. Um, 
I try to send anybody I can to the vet center anytime somebody asks me about what I do. And I think the benefit of the vet center is that um, I don't think there's any better better, hand, better to handle veterans than VA, even with the reputation or the problems or the news stories. I just Nobody else has those resources or just that exposure and experience to the veteran and service member community. So I don't think there's anybody better, which the vet center gives you that experience and that that uh, that foundation, but it's separated. I think is what what really appeals what really appealed to me anyway, and appeals to other veterans that it's not going to the VA hospital. I'm just going to uh, you know mine's kind of in a strip mall, so I go to a strip mall. They have some offices in there, and I talk with my social worker. That it's it's not the VA. Um, it doesn't have the big VA logo plastered all over everything. It doesn't have uh, you know the president's picture and the secretary of human health and. Uh, health and services picture up there and, and the VA secretary's picture. I mean, all the things we see in all the VA facilities, it's, it's not. So even though it's VA facility and VA providers, um, I think it really gives the impression that it's distanced. It has that separation. And so I think it brings a lot of that benefit with it of being VA, but gives us veterans on this side that might have that hesitation. You know, it, it helps us overcome that, that, I'm not going into the VA. I'm going to the vet center. It's different. It's it's something else. So look at looking back at the the first encounter you had with the psychiatrist, where you were sort of in the mindset of like, well, what do you know? Um, when when did you kind of buck that feeling uh, when when dealing with psychiatrists and therapists? You know, um, probably 2015. That, uh, you know, I described some of my encounters with, with the mental health intake and then the psychiatrist they assigned me to. Um, I have a psychology degree. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I was always a big fan of the psychology side and not the psychiatry side. That, well, you're just a doctor that wants to give me medications. That's all you want to do is deal with chemicals and prescriptions and things like that. So I always had this, I guess, a bit of an aversion to psychiatry and was much more a fan of psychology and uh, counseling and social work side of things, more of the behaviorist kind of things. But it was this psychiatrist, probably 2015. I went and saw him the first time, um, very defensive. I was, you know, uh, with the experiences I had, I was not prepared for a good experience. And uh, I went in there and, you know, we kind of felt each other out. We did okay. I saw him a couple more times throughout that year. And I think that's what started to change me around on psychiatrists that, I go see him, and he recognizes that his role is to manage my medications and my physical health and what these medications do to my body. And he is big on, good, get your social worker for counseling then. Go do the EMDR therapy at the vet center. Um, talk with the psychologist in the trauma program. That's what they're there for. Go use them, where I didn't feel like that was an emphasis before with other uh, psychiatrists. So that kind of attitude and that emphasis on just being a part of the therapy plan and therapy solution that really kind of turned me around on psychiatry in general. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, therapy. That's something that um, I've been looking to have more conversations with people about in general. Um, therapy is something that I have just begun uh, for the first time while I'm not in a bad place. So that was um, one of the uh, something I deliberately did was uh, you know pursue therapy while I'm not depressed. I'm not in, a, in a, an emotional crisis and make it a system for me that is in place if I should ever. Uh, you know, enter an emotional crisis again. And I have, uh, you know, I don't, I, I do digital therapy, right? So, or virtual therapy. I have a, a therapist that I, I sort of, it's essentially text messaging, right? Back and forth okay. um, over an app. Um, and so I'm, I'm not accustomed or familiar with, uh, with in-house therapy and uh, I don't qualify for a vet, for a vet center um, uh, services. So that's why one of the reasons why I haven't been there. Um, but, you know, I'm curious to hear, um, what your sort of the evolution of your therapeutic process in therapy has been. I know that um, I'm sure when you first go in there, that takes the time to get used to the person and then sort of maybe the floodgates open up. And then maybe uh, I'm one friend that goes to the vet center said one thing he really likes is he likes going in there when he doesn't have any, when he doesn't have something be- like wrong to talk about, like some, <laughs> right. just, you know, just being able to go in there and just sort of start having a conversation and then realize, oh, hey, yeah, by the way, th- there is this one thing that he just dismissed in the moment, but now that he's in, in, a, in a good spot, he can uh, bring it up. So I, I know I'm kind of uh, rambling on this and calling on a lot from you here, but just go over, over your the evolution of your, th- of your uh, experience with therapy. 
Sure. Well, first, I want to say good for you with with therapy. I mean, that's uh, fantastic. I think any of us could benefit from that. I mean, we spend so much time worrying about physical health and physical fitness and kind of put the emotional thing aside. And you're right, just because you're not in an emotional crisis doesn't mean you wouldn't benefit from that kind of emotional fitness, that emotional maintenance of things. So uh, I think that's, think that's awesome. So, well, I talked a little bit about like the cognitive processing therapy that was very scripted, very specific, and looking at it retrospectively, I can see where that would be very effective for an isolated incident that you have some type of, um, you know, here in the States, you have some type of assault or, uh, you know, uh, a rape case, things like that, that maybe when you can literally isolate this event is what is, is the problem. Um, it can be a little more specific. Um, but I think, like I said, I feel like I had very limited, um, success out of that because it was that scope was so narrow and the problem was so broad. So, and even when I finished that, they did a, a group therapy, kind of a, you graduate into the, cognitive processing therapy group. And I had a very bad experience with that. Um, I was down at the hospital and I'm a good, you know, hour, 10 minutes from the hospital because it's Chicago. And even though it's 20 miles away, it takes that long to get there. (laughs) So I drive this long to get down there on one of our worst highways that we have in the city. And, um, it, it wasn't well facilitated. Um, it, it, in this program had, um, it, it, spread across generations. So we had Vietnam veterans in there. We had um, OEF, OIF veterans in there. We had people in between. And the one time I went, it really was just be- became a, like a pissing match between uh, a young female veteran that was in Afghanistan, I believe she was, and this old crotchety, salty Vietnam vet. And it was, I had this worse, you had nothing, the bickering back and forth, total unproductive conversation. And... Um, so I got turned off to that really fast because I, I drove, I suffered through traffic to get here for this. And this is so, um, you know, left the, the cognitive processing therapy pretty quickly. Um, on the like, kind of a, a side rail with the traumatic brain injury stuff, the speech pathology department, I thought it was weird. I'm getting sent to a speech pathologist when I can speak well. I can speak just fine. I don't need a speech pathologist. But they, the speech pathology department has a lot of, because of the areas of the brain that involve speech and eye movement and the uh, visual acuity, um, they're the ones that are handling aspects of the traumatic brain injury therapy, which I thought was kind of cool. And they did that. I have little, I'm very fortunate that my, my traumatic brain injury isn't more severe that I get uh, some memory issues. I get uh, some cognitive hiccups sometimes when I'm trying to interact with people um, but I, like I said, I'm very fortunate that that's as bad as it, it is it is for me. And um, a lot of that really, I guess, has gotten a lot better because of kind of retraining memory with speech pathology. And I did a lot of that over the um, teleconference. I can't remember the, the actual term, that VA, the telehealth. There we go. Through the VA telehealth where I sat in front of a screen and essentially Skyped with a therapist who was down at the hospital 20 miles away. While I was at the clinic, and uh, that was kind of weird. I tried doing counseling that way, not having it. But speech pathology worked out with these kind of um, memory exercises and kind of relearning how to encode and, and get through. So the speech pathology was really kind of neat. And the big success I got, again, like I said, was at the vet center, was this therapy program called Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, I think is what EMDR stands for. And it sounds so hokey. Oh my goodness, Tim, you look at lights, they go back and forth from left to right and they just keep going back in your eye. You just follow it with your eyes and essentially it mimics like REM sleep when your eyes are moving and it does. It sounds so hokey. I'm going to look at lights and I'm going to feel better. This is stupid. And really I gave it a shot because I was in kind of a desperate spot that I felt like the other um, emotional wellness and mental health therapies had kind of stalled out and I'd really got gotten as much as I was going to get from them, which I still felt like I was kind of surviving, that I wasn't thriving. I wasn't doing well. I was just kind of, I was okay. I was better than I was, but I wasn't where I thought I could be or where I wanted to be. Definitely not where I wanted to be. So this EMDR, um, a lot of it is, there's a lot of talk therapy. You organize through thoughts, you put things out. And when you hit these stuck points, uh, we, we call them, we put it on the lights. That's the expression my social worker and I use. And he does. He gets out this light bar, and it's a row of lights, and it zips back and forth, and you watch it. And what it does is it accelerates the cognitive processing of things, that we experience these traumatic events, 
and um, we don't have time to be emotional about it. I mean, the Marine Corps did a really good job of telling you to put emotion away and you respond. You just feel angry about it because angry is productive, but scared and sad about things, it's not productive. So we shove that away. And this trauma comes from having never actually experienced the sadness or the fear or the guilt and actually process through it. So it's kind of, that's why it keeps recycling that it's not a memory anymore. You're still reliving it. And EMDR, it's just like when you're dreaming and you're asleep for 20 minutes, but you have a dream of two, three days at a time, uh, you know, that accelerated time frame. Um, that's what it emphasizes on. So it brings these things back up and you process through them at this accelerated rate without thinking about it. That you you hit this stuck point, you get an image or um, a cognition that I'm not good enough or uh, I should have done more, things like that. And that's what you focus on. You watch these lights go back and forth. There's little buzzers in each hand that alternate buzzing. So you get this back and forth um, stimulation. And uh, you go for 20, 30 seconds at a time, take a break, come back at it, and go back in and out of it. And the way it – it's insane. So you start with this pit in your stomach because you're all worked up, and you do it for a couple seconds, and you feel this like discomfort move. You feel it move through your chest. You get this lump in your throat, and then it kind of is gone. And then you start getting the thoughts um, with it. And I've actually been able to recall a whole lot more – details about events having gone through this processing that instead of things are hidden away or in the subconscious that uh, they get drawn up and you you essentially re-experience emotionally anyway re-experience the event so that you can process and be past it and it's really wicked and the first time the first event we did was was the story i told you about with andy being killed um that i you know that was a, a heavy one and we processed through that and this is you know, 10 years later, I never allowed myself to be sad. I never missed my friend. I was never sad that my friend was dead. Instead, I felt guilty about it. I was angry. I'd beat myself up about it. And we did this processing and we got about, you know, 95% of the way through and I just, tears just started running down my face and, you know, he's checking in with me. The social worker asked me, what, I'm, what am I feeling? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? And it was just sad. It was this profound sadness. Because my friend was dead. I missed my friend. And it it was agonizing. It was like a terrible sadness, but it, it felt normal. It wasn't the depression or the, the anguish that I had felt before. This was like genuine. This was real. This was a real emotion. This is appropriate. Your friend's dead. Of course you should be sad. And I was kind of sold from that point forward. And it's really interesting because it was – it kind of resets the clock that I felt like my friend just died that morning. I did this processing and I was just now experiencing the sadness. So it took a little getting used to and it kind of spreads out, but it took a good, like uh, even a month later, I was like, oh, I feel like my friend just died last week and I'm still dealing with it. But it was all real. It was genuine emotion. So I, I went through this with a variety of events and as things pop up here and there, we'll take a couple minutes and we'll put it under the lights and work it through and things make more sense. Um, but I'm able to pro you process through things and you can file it away. It's a memory now. Instead of it being this traumatic thing that's hung on you, you process through it, you, you file it away, and now it's a memory. And now you can look at it as a memory. Um, you know, thing, you, you don't have to like it, but it, I think of things now. Uh, I can talk with you about stories or anybody about stories, and it's not – I'm not sitting – last time we talked, I had my 20-pound blanket that I helped that kept me calm. And I had to sit under that thing the whole time we were talking about events. It's upstairs. You know, my, my daughter uses it to help her sleep. I'm just sitting here drinking my coffee, chatting with you about things and not having nearly the trouble that I had last time years ago. And like I said, it sounds so hokey, but it's, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sold. I would, I would go, uh, try and sell this to people without any kind of compensation if I could. Uh, you know, and it's, I think that's the nice thing is that it's not incident specific that we can take one event at a time, but then you're not done. If there's another event, then we process through that one. If there's another event, we process through that one. And come to find out, I spent a lot of time running, a big runner. And the social worker explained it to me that you have this repetitive back and forth alternating pounding of your feet on the pavement. And he's like, that's probably what helped you maintain for so long is that you go out and run and daydream that as you get this back and forth stimulation on your feet, your mind wanders to whatever needs to be put away. Whatever little thought fragments haven't been organized yet, 
it goes and organizes them and it shoves them away without taking the mental energy to do it. So, um, like I said, the EMDR was at the Vest Center has just been, it's been incredible. It's been a while since I've needed the lights for things, but uh, I mean, they're always still there and it's a, what a fantastic tool to use. Yeah. That's really cool to hear about it. It's funny. you mentioned the blanket. There's been a few times since that conversation that people have asked me about weighted blankets and I always refer back to our conversation because uh, <laughs> I remember you, remember you using it. Um, Let's, uh, just a couple more things I want to touch on. The first, uh, you know, you mentioned that, you know, early on when, before you were getting, seek, uh, seeking help of VA and even when you were trying to get back into it and it wasn't working, you were, he- you were a heavy drinker. Um, I know that, uh, you know, in society in general, alcohol is a crutch. We definitely know that to be true in, uh, in the veteran community, um, how did you, you know, where are you with that part of your life and how did you, how did you improve that part? Well, um, fortunately I, I'm much better. First things first, much, much better with it. I am back to, I'll, I'll drink socially here and there. I'll have a drink or two on the weekend. Um, vast improvement from the five or six a night. Uh, you know, I would drink till, till I couldn't remember things, couldn't stay awake anymore. Um, so a, a dramatic improvement in that. And, very fortunately, um, I think it was my social work at the vet center and I didn't, I didn't need any therapy program. I didn't need, um, AA or anything like that. Um, we started this EMDR and I started having these real emotions and he had told me very sternly, he's like, you can't go home and drink. You're going to go home and be exhausted. You're going to be emotional. Here's these other things you can do to help that. He gave me some, you know, some at home things to do to manage those. He said, you can't drink. You can't uh, alter the way your brain is going to process through this. Um, so it, uh, you know, I kind of take his word as gold because of how this therapy made me feel that I came in there and it took me a good like six months before I realized this guy wasn't a veteran himself. He's just hmm. that, that in tune with the veteran community and listens that well to veterans when they talk that, you know, I, I was, I think this guy, he knows the things to say. He knows about the culture. He, it took a while. So he, he established some credibility very early on. And then we started this EMDR and it was, this is going to be dangerous if you go home and drink, you know, not just the typical uh, VA does their drinking screening that we think you have an alcohol problem. They diagnosed me with alcohol abuse and put it in my list of things in my chart. And, you know, he, he actually spelled a few things out that is, here's why it's a problem. Here's why it's dangerous. And that really resonated with me that I wouldn't drink on those days when we do the therapy. So there we now have a day out of seven that I wasn't drinking. And then I'd see, you know, um, I hit a couple points that I needed to do this therapy two or three times a week, which was, man, was that intense, but very beneficial. So now we're at two or three days a week that I'm not drinking. And then it just started to space out a little bit more and a little bit more, um, and then as I got back to work, it was, I'm not drinking before I go to work. So it just found, uh, I found more things to not drink than instead of drinking myself to sleep. Cause that's all I had. It was, I can't cause it'll mess up this progress that I've made. You know, I, I went and did this huge emotional workout and I'm not going to go compromise the benefit of that by, by drinking. It's going to suck tonight. I'm going to stay under my blanket. I'm going to put out the lavender uh, essential oils too, it, whatever it takes to just get through the night. And then I felt so much better the next morning having had that processing. So, you know, what the therapist said resonated with me. And then it was backed up with my own anecdotal experience that, hey, maybe I don't need to drink. What I need is this therapy instead. Um, I never felt better after drinking. <laughs> you know, I, I drink until yeah. I was unconscious. And then you wake up and you feel like garbage and none of the problems that made you drink are gone. So you do it again. And, uh, you know, so here I am that I do this and, man, this is rough. But I feel different than yesterday. I feel a little bit better. Maybe I have a little more energy than yesterday. Um, so that, you know, that kind of stuff, like I said, it, it, it worked out really well for me. Um, I didn't get in any kind of legal trouble with drinking, um, things like that. Very fortunate with that. And it was, it was just this therapy progression that therapy kind of worked its way in and shoved alcohol out. Yeah. So well, Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, what, what were you mentioned that he sent you home with a couple things that you could do alternatively? What were some of those things? Well, some of them were uh, like grounding techniques. That it was sit in a chair, feet flat on the floor, and it was feel the pressure where your feet are. Give me, uh, essentially, concentration exercise. Where are your feet? Feel them. What part of your foot has the most 
pressure on the floor, you know, where your hand and not even think about it, just sit down somewhere and then start thinking about it. And then it's, well, where are your hands? What do you feel on your hands? What part of your hands has the most uh, pressure on it? And it was, it was the same kind of stuff as laying under the blanket that as I focus on this physical sensory input, the, um, the cognitive, the emotional side was kind of kept at bay to process this immediate physical input. Um, so that kind of reset any of the emotional stuff. Um, and he was phenomenal. I call him anytime I need to. I call, I mean, I don't have his home number or anything, but I call the vet center and it's, I can't see you today, but I got 20 minutes that I'm going to sit here and eat my salad while I talk to you. If you don't mind me eating and talk on the phone and walk me through things. Um, the heavy blanket was a huge one. Um, we would call it butterflying. It's the same kind of thing as the back and forth stimulation that you cross your arms and you tap alternating shoulders. Um, that he's like, that'll do the same kind of processing through. Um, and we rated it, zero, you know, one to 10. And he's like, if you get over a five or a six, that's a little bit too distressing. Don't open that can of worms without me. Don't go, you know, process that through yourself. But if little things are coming up and they're kind of a one, two, three that are a little bit distressing, maybe they're a little even annoying, do this butterfly technique, kind of process that through before things accumulate and a two or three becomes a six, seven, eight and becomes bigger issues. Interesting. So the last thing, uh, you mentioned it uh, a while ago, but something that I think – one of the things I, I definitely think is a valuable resource that, um, that not enough veterans know how to tap into. I'm interested to see uh, and just interested to learn how you learn about it and how you've used it, and that's the patient advocate. Um, whenever we get someone who – especially like on Twitter when someone comes and is like, oh, the VA is horrible, my, my, my doctor sucks, this sucks – uh, my first question to them, if I'm engaging with them on Twitter, is have you spoken to your patient advocate? Um, because that's why they're there. They're there for the concerns that you have with the healthcare you're getting at your medical center. Uh, so how did you learn about your advocate, and then how have you been able to take advantage of them? Jeez, okay, so patient advocate, I'm not even sure if I remember specifically how I became aware of them. I think it may have been my wife doing her research that she was really worried sending me down to mental health intake. She's like, great, you know, everybody – is down there just going to tell him he's nuts, he doesn't have any real problems, just go home and suck it up, you know, which they did, <laughs> rightfully so. She was kind of worried about it. So she looked at that when I came home and didn't have a whole lot of solutions or at least a plan on how to manage this. So she started looking at things and found patient advocate, um, stepped into their office and, and talked with them. Um, unfortunately, one of the cases, the, the therapist that told me to get over it and go back to work um, – she also, she and I did not have a good interaction. She would leave the office during our therapy sessions. She'd take phone calls and leave the office. Um, so they were involved with, with that one. And unfortunately that one even progressed to a congressional inquiry, um, which I felt was handled very well by, this is the Heinz VA that I go to out, out here by Chicago. The, the mental health uh, department chair kind of handled that one pretty nicely, I thought. And, a patient advocate has really helped with my primary care doctor. They helped with, well, first they helped with that psychiatrist. That it was, you can't be with that psychiatrist. Um, you know, like you had made a, a mention of it before that with any, I guess with any provider or anybody you're interacting with, there's got to be some level of, um, you know, appropriate interaction or comfort, I guess, mutual comfort between, between those two parties, especially in the therapeutic setting. And if this isn't therapeutically beneficial, you know, and, it, personally, I don't think that's a problem. If I come to you as a, a counselor and we just don't click, then as a professional, I don't think you should be offended that I go to another another uh, provider. You know, I wouldn't be as a provider that if I'm not doing it for you, then somebody else needs to. So we'll get you to somebody else that does. So patient advocate was really good about that. That we've identified you two do not kind of, uh, you don't jive in the therapeutic sense. So let's find you someone that does. And that's how they got me to the psychiatrist I'm with, which I think they just picked one that it was next on the list. And fortunately it was a very beneficial one. Um, the other circumstance where they've been very helpful was with my, um, audiologist. Yeah. I want to say audiology that, uh, I have some hearing trouble. I have a uh, hearing aid, once I, I go to my primary care doctor, he says there's no pill for your hearing problem. Go away. So they also helped me get my primary care physician changed, um, that I didn't have a good therapeutic relationship with my PCP. Um, so they helped me move to one closer to work in a different clinic. And it even said that, that it's, you know, the VA wants to work through 
problems. So if you have a problem with your provider, they're going to leave you there and want you to work with it. But if it's more convenient for you to be with another one, that's not really trouble. We can kind of work around that and get you another primary care doctor in another clinic if it ends up being more convenient. So that ended up being very nice. And then the same kind of thing with audiology that um, I came in to see the audiologist get fitted for a hearing aid and her response was, well, I can't really do anything for you because you haven't seen a, an ENT surgeon yet, even though I don't have any surgical – I never got a referral to ENT. I didn't understand – you know, I, they wanted my ears cleaned out by a surgeon, um, and it was, well, I can't help you because surgeons aren't here. So there was that kind of issue, and uh, that one got a little heated. That did not go well, but it was the same kind of thing that, you know, there might be an audiologist that's actually closer to you and more convenient, and we can just move you over and uh, and have had a whole lot of tr- a lot of great interactions with that audiologist there. So patient advocate's been very good with um, addressing the immediate problem. That if it's this is the only if this provider is the only option you have, here's the things we need to do. But fortunately, being in the populated area where I am and having the access that I am is that you know we can go through this big mediation process to try and get you guys to get along. Or we can just talk about how more how it would be more convenient to have another provider, which worked out better for me as the patient. And I think you know there's far less resources spent on, on other things. So it doesn't really change the system as a whole, I guess, if a provider is a problem. But I think a lot of my problems with providers were personality things that weren't going to change. You know, if, if you and I don't get along personally, then I, you know I don't know how much more we can do about that. So we will just move you to a more convenient practitioner that you do get along with better and can have those therapeutic relationships with. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, Kevin, we have been talking for quite a while, uh, <laughs> which is awesome. That means that there was that much to talk about. And I appreciate you uh, talking to us about your service, opening up about your experience with VA, talking about uh, all the other experiences you've had with uh, recovery. And, uh, you know, it's just, I know that, the listeners are appreciating every little bit of uh, knowledge, insight, experience that you're, you're sharing with them. So I want to thank you for that. My pleasure. Um, all right. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that maybe you came in to this conversation prepared to, to talk about that we haven't touched on? I think we touched on a lot of it. And I think the only closing remark that I'd want to say to anybody who's listening um, especially if you're preparing to approach the VA and ask for help, is that if you think you need some help for whatever it is, um, there's not a problem with you asking for help. You deserve the help that's there. If you need help, you deserve it. You're worthy of getting help. And um, don't back down at the first sign of there being some difficulty or trouble. I mean, this is this is the veteran community. We are uh, you know, the defenders of freedom or whatever you want to call it that – We've never been one to back down when things get difficult or or hard or you have to overcome obstacles. We make it work. We adapt, improvise, and overcome. So when you go in and you ask for help and you get that provider that does suck because no system can be perfect, you get the provider that sucks, don't uh, don't expect everybody to be horrible, but recognize that you still deserve some help just because you encountered a bad provider doesn't mean you're not worthy of the help. And do your homework and ask for the help. Know what you're asking for when you go in there and make it happen. Don't let somebody tell you, no, you're not good enough. You are good enough, so go get it, just like you would any other time in any other aspect of your military service. This is no different. Go get it. You're you're worth it, and you're going to be better for it at the end. Perfect. Kevin drove that one home. My goodness. <laughs> Sir, I really appreciate your time, and I hope we get to talk again soon. Tim, I look forward to it. Have a great, uh, a great week. VA's round-the-clock hotline can put veterans who are homeless in touch with the resources and support they earned through their military service. Call 877-424-3838. So as we mentioned uh, a few times during my interview with Kevin, patient advocates are huge. They're a big part of how VA medical centers run because they are there to assist you when concerns arise. They are there uh, to be your helping hand in getting the care that you need, understanding uh, you know, what paths or avenues to take to get to what you need, to answer any questions that you have. They're there for you. 
and you can discover who they are simply by going to your facility, going to your medical center, uh, and asking uh, to speak to a patient advocate. Or uh, if you know your medical center's page on the va.gov website uh, on the left-hand side, and I'm doing this literally right as I'm, as I'm telling you, I'm, I'm clicking through this. Uh, on the left-hand side, you'll see patients and visitors. You click that. Patient information, you click that. And then customer service, you click that. Of course, that is from, uh, so I just did that from the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Centers page um, on va.gov. If you know your med medical centers uh, page, you go to that. You'd follow those steps, patient and visitors, patient information, customer service, and boom, right there. Uh, obviously, it'll, it'll, uh, the first part will say like office of the patient experience and advocate or some version of that. Um, whatever that medical center uh, decides to call uh, that office, but they're patient advocates. That's what they're there for. And you will see names and numbers of people to call uh, to express concerns you have about your care. Today's veteran of the day is U.S. Navy veteran Tony Roberti. Tony became a chief petty officer. He deployed to Afghanistan and led a team of six that was responsible for managing his bases, communications, and surveillance. He was also a force protection officer and a project payment manager. We thank Tony for his service. To read Tony's full write-up and to nominate your own Veteran of the Day, visit blogs.va.gov. That wraps up episode 55. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to visit blogs.va.gov for more stories from our community. I look forward to next week's events and we'll most likely even run into a few of you while I'm out and about in D.C. and at certain events. But until then, I'm Timothy Lawson signing off.